Sarah King is the head of Greenpeace Canada's Oceans and Plastics campaign, pushing for a plastics-free future by holding corporations accountable for the growing plastics pollution crisis. Sarah's worked to protect our oceans and ocean-dependent communities for over a decade. She studied in the Environmental Applied Science and Management Program at Toronto Metropolitan University and has worked at a consulting firm doing environmental impact assessments in order to help determine the scope of negative impacts associated with various development projects. I speak with her about the place of plastics in our everyday lives, the impact that plastics have on the environment, and the many ways that the Trudeau government's plastics ban is woefully inadequate. I won't summarize everything that Sarah explains here, but I will quote a particularly pithy summary of her position. She says that, in fact, the entire category of single-use plastics is a problem because of the overwhelming scale of production and our lacking in disjointed infrastructure. She stresses that the government is actually very scared to take strong action to hold industry accountable. The result tends to be policies that benefit industry and do nothing to protect the environment. Loopholes can be found throughout Canada's environmental regulations, and that means profit over survival. We have a new set of policies that the Liberal government is claiming will give us a zero-plastic-waste future by 2030. But King is very pointed in her assertion that actually the government has to know that this is a false promise. In her words, they have to be looking at that target knowing that it's impossible, given the state of environmental protections in this country and the incredibly minor push to end plastics production and pollution. Confronting industry and closing loopholes is all about moving radically in a different direction. King says that embracing a reuse and refill revolution would legitimately signal the end of the plastic era and begin to seriously challenge our fossil fuel dependent system in which the wrong things are valued. Getting to that entirely reasonable, feasible alternative will take a project of accelerated solidarity building though, because the lobby for fossil fuels and petrochemicals is very strong. For this reason, King is really looking for more alignment between segments of the environmental movement. We're starting to see this and to see a shift both toward the centering of the people that are most impacted when it comes to crafting solutions and a way forward, and toward, as Sarah puts it, addressing not just our planetary crisis, but also our social justice crises around the world. It's, um, it's a pivotal moment in many ways that we're, I mean, the, the solutions that we're starting to see emerge right now in terms of solving, responding to the plastics pollutions, uh, pollution crisis, um, you know, are obviously in many ways too little too late. Like you write in one article that we really needed these solutions yesterday. And this is a problem that is cumulative where, you know, the often cited statistic that we recycle maybe, you know, as as low as 8%, maybe even lower of our plastic. It's like that doesn't tell the full story in terms of the cumulative problem, which is that we've only ever recycled that much. And so that is becoming apparent. And now we're starting to see these solutions, but there's a belatedness to them. And so I wanted to ask you, first of all, about that question, I guess, of awakening to some extent, like you talk about the fact that, and I think this is not known to a lot of people, every stage of plastics life cycle pollutes. Um, and I wanted to ask you to kind of relate this to the disaster unfolding in East Palestine, Ohio, where you have, you know, 
massive plumes of incinerated vinyl chloride, especially a key ingredient in PVC, poisoning residents across three U.S. states. Do you think these sorts of focusing events um, can help people begin to come to terms with, or not come to terms with, but confront the catastrophic effects of basically like neoliberal deregulation um, and the volatile oil economy? Like how aware of the whole process of plastics production and distribution do you think the public is right now? You know, I, th- I think that people haven't been that aware of, you know, what it takes to, to create, you know, the plastic bottle or that plastic wrap um, around their numerous, numerous goods, you know, that they purchase in a week um, at their local grocery store. I think that, um, you know, when we think of plastic pollution, uh, the problem to some extent has been out of sight for a lot of people living in Canada. Um, You know, if you're not participating in a shoreline cleanup, um, if you're not out on the water, if you're not living in a coastal community, then you may not think that the problem is as big as it is. Um, and I think, you know, we, we weren't taught these kinds of things in school. You know, what are things made of? Where do things come from? Um, you know, we've seen more and more people ask questions around their food, but I think we're not at a place yet where people are asking these questions about everything in their lives because, you know, also that's exhausting <laughs> to do. Mm-hmm. It's so hard for people to navigate and try to figure out how to make all, you know, the quote, right choices. Um, and there's so much pressure on the consumer to be making the right choice all the time. And so when we think of plastic from extraction of the fossil fuel, all the way through to disposal, and even once it's pollution, it's contributing to the climate crisis, it's contributing to the biodiversity crisis, and it is impacting frontline communities and coastal communities uh, here in Canada and around the world. And um, I think the more that we connect plastic to oil and plastic to, um, you know, the harms of oil production and oil spills and chemical spills, the more people will realize that, um, you know, this is more than a waste and a plastic pollution problem. This is, um, you know, it's a massive crisis, a social and environmental crisis that goes all the way back to our overall economic system. But yeah, you know, bit by bit, we, we need to be bringing people along and connecting those dots. Um, yeah, I really appreciate those insights, like just the idea that we do need a kind of structural overhaul. You talk about a system reboot, like I'm very sympathetic to that idea. Uh, but I wanted to kind of pick up on something you said about the pressure that we place on consumers, because like, you know, the fossil fuel industry has been uh, one of the most vocal uh, plastics industry being part of it, most vocal in terms of downloading or, or um, delegating responsibility really to individual consumers. And I see you in an article on um, Halloween, thinking through that in some ways, like this is a, you know, how I love Halloween, right? It's like this fun ritual. Um, but, and you're making clear though, that there is also this this overwhelming kind of uh, uh, you know avalanche of plastic that comes with all of these holidays, and so like while you could just like guilt consumers, and even the Guardian is sort of guilty of this is like just like you know informing us in ways that are supposed to mobilize our individual like agency when the problem is 
all that is out of sight, as you put it, right? You know, the sacrifice zones that most of us are not aware of. Um, and so like when we think about something as sort of banal and annual and, and sort of like automatic as enjoying Halloween, um, it, it's, it's the case that as you put it at the end of that article, um, you know, it's overwhelming to think about something like that being a plastic filled occasion. Right. Um, and so what, and to me, what's interesting when it comes to thinking about like just that one event, this yearly event of Halloween is that for many people, um, the reason why thinking around plastic is virtually impossible is that it's, it makes the stuff safe. Like it makes what you consume safe. Yeah. And there's like a, there's like a fundamental irony there, um, that I think is worth kind of exploring and that I see you kind of exploring where you're trying to, on some level, convince people that the thing that you have been taught protects you is actually what is making you most at risk, right? And so, like, yeah. is that part of the idea is to kind of draw those connections for people? Definitely. And, you know, I think um, a lot of us in the advocacy community um, and definitely the science community, um, you know, have struggled about how do we talk about plastic? Because the reality is that we know that a lot of the chemicals used in plastic production and certain types of um, polymers, uh, you know, have been shown to be toxic and um, have caused harm and continue to cause harm in -hmm. various ways and have been linked to various diseases, you know, even types of cancers. Um, But there has been a lack of science that have made direct connections, you know, between Mm -hmm. sort of your packaging here is leading to this disease or this negative health outcome here in these people. Um, And so it's, it's been difficult to, you know, share the realities of what goes into plastic and um, you know, what the potential negative outcomes could be um, while also, you know, speaking from a credible comms perspective essentially but we but we do we do know that you know sure plastic is toxic and i think we also know that these findings that it's been found in our blood you know in our lungs and placenta in you know all these parts of our bodies um we know that that can't be good like it's mm-hmm. it's it's not meant to be there mm-hmm. and i think that that has struck a chord with people but again, you know, I, I think it's, it's still, there's not enough yet uh, being done to say these are the ways that it's entering our body. Um, and that's why we need to take a precautionary approach and not be exposing ourselves to so much of it. And that's where um, we're seeing the unfortunate lack of action by government is around this precautionary approach when it comes to the human health side. Yeah, which is so striking. I mean, it's interesting to think about such a violent, volatile event like the um, explosion of this 150 car train and the three cars that contain vinyl chloride, this key element of PVC being, um, you know, among the highest profile or, you know, most impactful, let's say, uh, aspects of the story, uh, but also the kind of just struggle to keep uh, to keep it on our screens. And certainly like, um, you know, you, you talk about how, you know, industry has been very good at sort of co-opting certain kinds of terms, but also creating a level of indecision and confusion. Um, and so, yeah, it's really important, as you say, from a communications perspective to just sort of remind people that while, 
we don't know fundamentally like the full impact of these products. We do know um, that they're almost certainly toxic, that the kind of, dur- you know, unnaturally durable nature of them, the fact that they're based in hydrocarbons, it's like, it's almost a no brainer that these things, especially if we're talking about incinerating them are bad for us. Right. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that really resonated with me when I read your writing for Greenpeace is this insight that we can't allow products that are similarly problematic to replace banned ones. Mm-hmm. Like the petrochemical industry is endlessly ambitious about innovating new versions of the same toxic products. So I wondered if you could speak to that ambition and how regulation needs to kind of anticipate it. Like now we have non-toxic Teflon and like BPS instead of BPA. There's this a kind of zombie-like quality to plastics when we look to try to erase them from the environment. Yeah, I mean, the government has definitely, you know, whether it comes to certain chemicals or in the case of the single-use plastics ban, um, certain types of plastic, it's not looking, you know, at a full, say, class of chemicals or a full category of single-use plastics. It's Mm -hmm. looking, you know, on a case-by-case basis, item-by-item, and really ignoring the fact that it's it's actually, you know, when it comes to single-use plastics and packaging, it's actually the entire category that's problematic. And within that category, different types of products or types of packaging are problematic for different reasons. But the, the entire category is a problem if it ends up in the environment, is, you know, at best suboptimal in waste when it comes to waste management. Because mm-hmm. even, the, even the types of plastics that are the most recyclable um, and are the most commonly recycled are still because of our level of production um, and because of our lacking and disjointed infrastructure, it's still not like it's all being collected and it's all being recycled um, in this wonderful circular way. So mm. it you know, the government has not been taking a holistic approach. It's not been kind of looking taking a step back and looking at this larger problem of, if we really want to be moving towards a low carbon, truly zero waste, truly circular economy, we have to get serious about the level of production of fossil fuels and fossil fuel products, full stop. You know, we can't just be hoping that banning, you know, a bag here or a fork there um, is going to address the problem. It may result and it will result in fewer you know, items and hopefully seen in our community. Um, But yeah, it's, it is allowing for all of these loopholes for industry, as you mentioned, you know, around, well, if a plastic fork meets certain requirements, um, it can be considered reusable. And then there you go. We just have a bunch of more durable plastic forks that people don't identify as truly reusable. And so they still, you know, end up in the garbage. Sure. It's been unfortunate um, that the government hasn't been looking at, you know, the the zero waste har- hierarchy and and really prioritizing, you know, what kind of makes the most sense. If you want less plastic waste and less plastic pollution, you have to create less of it in the first place. And they've just not um, been willing to really commit to do that. Mm hmm. I definitely want to um, think about like the practical stuff that Greenpeace is suggesting as a a kind of radical alternative. Um, But I guess I'm, I'm inclined to sort of ask you to 
because uh, I think your writing attempts to do this in some ways, is like diagnose the sort of um, reasons for inaction. I mean, you you talk in one article about the need to take a bird's eye view of the system and social structures to kind of try and see the problem holistically. I wonder, though, about how you approach attempting to communicate the need to see the whole system operating and call for a system reprogram while still kind of making the message bridgeable and convincing, you know, for for like, let's say the average Canadian, this like hypothetical figure, right? Yeah. You know, one of the things you're doing is, is for example, pointing to actually existing alternatives, right? Yeah. But you're also trying to sort of suggest that um, there are these vested interests that are invested in blocking progress and, and calling for that to just stop. Like you literally say, like, cease efforts to block progress, stop glamorizing consumption. Um, so like, you know, is that part of your your personal strategy as communicators, like talk about these alternatives, but then also try to be explicit about the the pathological kinds of things that exist within consumer society that make us mired in plastics. Yeah, you know, definitely for me, I'm like, I, I'm always like, okay, where, where do we need to go? Like, let's, what's mm-hmm. the vision here? What's the ideal scenario where we're operating within the Earth's limits? Um, where mm-hmm. we're not causing harm um, to people and to wildlife and, you know, to ecosystems. Um, and, you know, of course, how do we get there? And I think, you know, Greenpeace is, of course, known for definitely the shock factor, but also being like trying to raise the bar of what is possible. Right. I feel like when I reflect on... Um, the plastic free movement and how it's evolved Uh, in the earlier days, I definitely found that people were really stuck on like people, people didn't feel like we could get out of this system that we are so entrenched in this take, make waste. Uh, You know, plastic is everywhere. Plastic is in everything. How will we, how would we ever get out of this? It's Mm -hmm. not possible. So how do we make this better? Um, But the reality is, you know, that, different ways of operating different ways of being are are actually happening all around us and mm-hmm. they have been ever since plastic really came onto the scene i mean there is a better way of being like we can get there and there are small examples of it all around we just need to like that you're already engaging in in your day-to-day life you know something as simple as um you know you go to a a&w and you put your cup against the fountain machine and you get your drink that is a form of reuse and refill that can be modified and expanded and, you know, used in various applications that would dramatically reduce the number of single use vessels in various forms. Um, So I think it's about connecting those dots in the day-to-day life while also not putting the onus always on the person, but saying, if you want to be part of, you know, of the movement to move towards uh, you know, a healthier, truly zero waste, plastic free economy, and then here are things that you can do to push decision makers to get us to where we need to be. And I think that that's kind of the key in the evolution of the break free from plastic, plastic free, you know, plastic free July um, mm-hmm. movements is that we need to be taking the onus off each person to be trying to carry the entire plastic free load on their shoulders and instead 
give them the tools and empower them to be calling for the investment in the shift that we need. And, and you know, one of the kind of key phrases that I see pop up uh, in a number of places to try and just help people um, imagine this and imagine that it is not unreasonable to demand this is this notion of a reuse revolution. Yeah. You know, this is a powerful idea, I think, and, and something that I, w- I would love to see scaled up. I mean, here in Halifax, we've seen a business called the Tear Shop yeah. struggle, actually, you know, in the context of the pandemic to sustain its reuse and refill model. Um, you know, they had to shut down their Halifax location, actually. And and so, you know, that that was disheartening, right? Like on, on the local level to see people... Um, and I know like you gave an interview where you talked about how you're more broadly kind of invested in trying to make people sort of anxious about their attachment to convenience. Mm-hmm. From your perspective, why would the change to reuse and refill be revolutionary, right? You're calling it a revolution. It seems like in a way such a small thing, but you're suggesting it's actually a new foundation, I think, in a sense, one that both eliminates single use and disposable items, but also takes aim at the model of convenience, of endless growth. I mean, single-use plastics are a are a profit maker, right? In what sense does it do both the local and the global, the macro and the micro, to sort of uh, uh, think in terms of the the reasonableness, the the possibility of a reuse and refill model being mandated across the board? Yeah, I mean, I think when we think about a, a transition to a reuse centered economy and you know, I definitely want to emphasize that it would be a just transition, um, as in centering justice um, in that process. Um, it really would signal um, the end of the plastic era. And that is, you know, you know that's what we're trying to do. Um, because that also, you know, uh, means that it's the end of our hyper fossil fuel dependent era, which we know we need to do um, if we're going to be living on a planet that we can all exist on. There's so many people um, working so hard to just, you know, keep keep a small reuse, refill business alive. Um, it's true. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned you mentioned the tear shop, which I totally is aware of. Um, but I, I know so many zero waste and refill businesses that are either struggling or have had to close or are probably going to have to close because yeah it's just a constant battle to try to operate within our current economy and our fossil fuel centric system Mm -hmm. um where you know the wrong things are valued and yeah the right things are either undervalued or not valued at all So I, you know, a reused revolution is, I mean, it it is happening, but it's, it's about really the, the transition to an actual circular economy that is compatible with meeting all of these biodiversity and climate and zero waste targets. It's what is going to help us get there um, and is required in order to truly achieve that. And so it's, it is bigger than, okay, you know, let's just swap out some reusables or swap out some single use for reusables here and there. It's a, a worldwide shift 
that we need that has started that we need to accelerate um, in order to meet our other planetary and social justice goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, like the way that you uh, articulate this notion of the circular economy for Greenpeace to me is um, a pretty visionary post-plastics policy. And yet um, where I have seen the concept pop up, it's mostly been, and you also identify this, like kind of co-opted by the plastics industry. Yeah. Um, I mean, like even the UN's Environment Assembly, uh, its plastics treaty pushes for a move toward the safe and non-toxic circularity of plastics or like an effort to repurpose plastics as part of the circular economy. But what you're saying is, quote, there is no such thing as a circular economy for plastics. Um, So I wanted to ask you about this. I mean, does a circular economy model for plastics, you know, of the type advocated by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, for example, just represent another delay tactic? Is it a misleading technological fix? And if a circular economy were to exist, would it necessarily mean adopting very strict anti-plastic legislation? It's definitely a delay tactic, and it definitely Mm. focuses on technological fixes. Right. And I mean, ultimately, when the concept of a circular economy for plastics was first created, it was about engaging the business community in being part of definitely not the solution, but a solution, thinking about how to address this massive problem of plastic waste and pollution and their contribution to it. And I think that what it actually is, though, is just a fancier way of saying, let's try to make plastic less problematic. Let's try to recycle it more. Let's try to come up with new ways of recycling but it ignores the fact that plastic ultimately, you know, as we know, is a fossil fuel. Um, it ignores that just due to the nature of plastic, it's always going to become waste. Um, and if not waste, you know, how many park benches do we really need? Like when we talk about downcycling, mm-hmm. you know, it ignores the energy inputs required. It ignores the fact that, yeah, like we're at a place in terms of plastic production globally, where it's just not possible to capture everything that's been produced. So we would have to be at a very different place in our plastic production journey and plastic use journey as a global society to be thinking of plastic uh, from a circular place. Best case scenario you're creating only or you're only using a couple different types of polymers that are shown to be the least toxic, the most recyclable. You can keep them in a loop for a super long time. And then the waste process is also not problematic um, and not Mm -hmm. polluting. But I mean, you know, that is harder than actually a just transition to a reuse centered system. Yeah, it's harder and it's more energy intensive and it's more costly and it's more polluting and it's more damaging and it's just not worth it. We know Mm -hmm. where we need to go to actually address the plastic waste and pollution crisis. We know that we have to dramatically reduce overall production of plastic and we need to rely on other systems, truly circular systems that are actually zero waste. Um, And so there's just no way that plastic can be a mainstay in the 
in the economy. That to me um, really encapsulates the sort of, you know, pl- the planet we want to inhabit and, and makes it so, so patently obvious, like that, um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, there's just an attachment to the existent system that seems to block uh, ideologically, basically, and politically block the emergence of uh, a healthier system. If we wanted to rely on just sort of human reason, it would be enough to just sort of like, um, you know, bottle that message and 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 disseminate it and then, you know, hope for the transformation. But the fact of the matter is we're seeing the ways in which like, especially overdeveloped nations like Canada really lag behind others in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I see in a number of places people saying, including your writing, like Canada could be a leader, right? Um, and yet there is no real push clearly within at least this, uh, the liberal government to hold companies accountable for the full life cycle of plastics. And so, yeah, I wondered if we, if you could, cause I know you have a background in environmental law and policy um, you know, I wondered if you could help people understand the sort of like legal background basically here that allows companies in spite of the, again, the reasonableness of, uh, energy transition phase out, like the obviousness of the need to kind of do that, you know, what it is about the legal environment that permits pollution that allows for to a certain extent like spills and leaks and explosions even to happen fairly regularly canada loves to project as you know an environmental leader and um with pretty strong laws and policies on the environment but the reality is that everything from the fisheries act to you know the canadian environmental protection act there's just always a loophole. There's always a way that industry can move forward um, to do something similar to the status quo, whether, you know, whether it is the BPA versus other biphenol examples, or whether it's, um, you know, mitigating destruction of a stream that salmon inhabit. Um, or allegedly mitigating the risk to salmon, there's always a way that industry can move forward. Um, It's very rare that industry is truly held accountable. A recent one, actually, is unrelated to plastic, but related to deep sea mining, where you may have seen that the federal government announced that currently in Canada, there isn't law or policy related to deep sea mining, and therefore, there is an effective moratorium. They're not saying Canada, there is a moratorium in Canadian waters, full stop. They're saying we don't have this law or policy. If we did, it would need to be rigorous in order for mining to to move ahead. And I feel like that's like an example of what it always is. It's that we don't want to give you a hard no Mm -hmm. so that industry can remain happy and the environment hopefully is in a bit of a better place or we bide a little bit of time. Um, and, you know, with, with a single-use plastics ban, of course, there are a lot of businesses that are impacted by that ban. But there are also a lot of loopholes and, and measures in place that mean that some businesses that are impacted, like producers that are impacted by the ban, can just produce more of something else. Right. The Canadian government is very scared, as we know, you know, to really take strong action to hold industry across sectors um, accountable. 
and it's it's always more of a collaborative ap- approach with industry and industry is prioritized in the creation um, of policy and I think mm-hmm. um, you know that obviously comes as no surprise to anybody that follows these issues it'll be interesting to see now with again you know climate commitments biodiversity commitments um, whether or not that shift will finally happen because we need stronger and clearer law in Canada if we're truly going to make those goals Um, and when it comes to plastic their strategy towards 2030 where they you know hope to to meet zero plastic waste I mean, they have to be looking at that, knowing that it's impossible. So mm-hmm. we, we need a law overhaul in Canada. And, you know, we're seeing some of that. We're seeing there's so much work being done by various groups across the country to improve, for example, the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, to improve the Fisheries Act, to improve the Oceans Act. But these things take time. You know, that's why with plastic, um, we now have a piece of what we need by, you know, having plastic manufactured items listed under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. We have that. So theoretically, things should move faster around uh, regulating problem plastics. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then it just comes back to political will. That's remarkable, right? That it comes down to political will. And I, I, on that question, I mean, you know, Greenpeace has partnerships with Environmental Defense, the David Suzuki Foundation, among many, many others. And you've noted that it's it's really been members of the public and these sorts of organizations joining together in order to get um, something like that that is potentially transformative um, on the books, like, it, you know, in, it put into law. Um, but what you're saying is that we we need to now push, right? Because even that was difficult, like listing of pla- listing plastics on the toxic substances list under the CEPA, that was fought against, right? The by the chemicals industry, they they fought tooth and nail to sh- to shut that down, and it still is being fought, yeah, legally. It still is being fought, um, and so there it is. It is almost like a war. I mean, it feels. Um, interestingly to me, like, uh, I think Emily Eaton called it a contest of stubbornness, like who can be more Mm -hmm. stubborn? Um, and so, you know, I think what Greenpeace is articulating is like really helpful in terms of like, you know, to use this unfortunate in some ways, war metaphor, uh, unfortunately fitting perhaps like war metaphor, you know, kind of arm people with the knowledge that they need in order to not become like complacent Mm -hmm. on on one level, it's about knowledge. I think, you know, trying to uh, make it clear to people that there have been no reduction targets. Uh, For example, that there's been no targeting really of the production stage, except for mandating 50% recycled content in plastic. There's been no serious consideration of the need for this reuse refill kind of revolution. And there's, you know, importantly, no ban on plastic exports either. Um, so like that is like, th- that's the knowledge part of it in a sense, like making these uh, uh, omissions, these strategic omissions really obvious to people. But then the other part of it is is political will, as you say. And, and I guess like, to what extent are you conscious of the need to like build solidarity here? Like, for example, calling for uh, a ban on plastic exports is about a kind of international solidarity with those that are, um, you know, living in Malaysia or the Philippines and who are, 
still suffering the like legacy of, of colonization in the form of becoming the dumping grounds for our plastic waste. Um, so could you speak to the, the, you know, these partnerships with other organizations, how political will in part comes from trying to build that solidarity and how like that solidarity maybe needs to expand and keep expanding past just like investments in preserving those that look like you, for example. Yeah. Definitely building the counter lobby is key because the lobby is strong. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's big oil, it's big plastic. um, And then it's their allies in, you know, in terms of um, those who are relying on these products. And that, that is a massive, massive, massive lobby. Um, And, you know, we've definitely seen a shift in terms of public support for more regulation mm-hmm. around plastic. We, you know, without a doubt, the overwhelming majority of people living in Canada want to see stronger action taken to ban single use plastics, um, you know, keep it out of the waste streams, keep it out of the environment. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that not everybody, um, you know, like has the bandwidth or the ability to be lobbying their MP every day or, you know, really Mm -hmm. just being a daily part um, of the push. And so in, you know, when it comes to our call to start by expanding the existing single use plastics ban, um, we have been focusing on showing that the environmental community but even more broadly, um, you know, key members of the health advocacy community, of the small business and, um, and other reuse services community um, are all aligned on what we want the government to be looking at next in terms of expanding the ban and tackling this broader category of some of these plastics mm-hmm. and packaging. We tend to, when it comes to environmental issues in the environmental, you know, and very various movements, you have different organizations with different priorities, um, and you're probably aligned on a whole lot of things, um, and then you're less aligned on other things because you just, you know, you have different priorities that your supporters um, are interested in, um, and that, you know, you want to be focusing your attention on. But we felt like it was really important to say no, you know, from Greenpeace to this small, you know, mom and pop reuse business over here, we all agree that the government isn't taking strong enough action. And we all agree that this is a list that you need to be prioritizing. Um, And, you know, right now we're at over 70 signatories to an on an open letter uh, to Minister Gilbo and Minister Duclos, Minister of the Environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and Minister of Health, calling on them to, you know, urgently, urgently revisit the the ban list, um, and we hope that that list will keep growing, and that we will continue to to make the counter movement more visible, and also elevate it, elevate those in the movement um, that have less of a voice, and that um, you know are being the most impacted by the lack of action by the federal government, either to address the pollution side of things or to address the lack of investment in the refill side of things. You know, our work on the Global Plastic Treaty, 
we're part Greenpeace is part of the large break free from plastic movement that has, you know, well over a thousand organizations all working together, representing, you know, all different um, interests in the issue of, you know, moving to a plastic free future. And through that coalition, um, again, you know, we really, we really want to be elevating the voices and the perspectives of those that are impacted um, and, and have the government, you know, governments, global governments be forced to, you know, look, look them in the face while they're also, you know, having their side lobby meeting with industry Hmm. to counter it. Um, Because the reality is, is that, you know, many groups don't have access. They don't, they can't plead their case. Yeah. I mean, you, you've spoken really, um, you know, pointedly about the specific precarity of low income communities, the relationship between plastics, uh, pollution and environmental racism. You know, it's worth emphasizing that it's really largely been communities of color that have been at the vanguard of kind of pushing for regulations around PFAS. Um, you know, creating these partnerships to create a, you know, the counter movement that you described to me, um, is so urgent and, you know, so I'm, I'm definitely interested to hear you speak to kind of like where you've seen more radical solutions emerge, maybe in other countries. I know Rwanda has a really extensive plastics ban. Um, but I guess, you know, I wanted to give you an opportunity to elaborate on like spe- the specifics of Greenpeace's goals, right? Because like, um, you know, the what one of the things that you've said, for example, is that the federal government's like trying to still drag its feet. It's clear it, it isn't one step on a path. This six, the banning of six single-use plastics. It's like the liberals regard this as the destination. Like this is adequate for them, and you've kind of gestured to this a few times. It is going to become clear to people that there is a fundamental disconnect between this measure and a zero plastic waste policy. It's just like the, the, there's a massive chasm between those two things. Um, and that, you know, the problem is dire. People increasingly understand the problem is really dire. And so what Greenpeace is pushing for is to initially add another six, especially toxic and problematic plastics to the ban. There's an insistence on the need to, to ban all takeout containers um, you know, and, and like pouches and wrappers, films and wrapping these, you know, filtered cigarettes and these kinds of things, produce stickers. Right. Um, and I wondered, you know, first of all, you know, why these six are the main targets of the expand the band campaign. Um, you know, things like film produce stickers, these are important targets for Greenpeace. Um, and then there's of course also this insistence on the need to eliminate other polymers like PVC and chemical additives. Like those are so important. And it feels radical, but yet, you know, um, from a radically environmentalist point of view, it's also in some ways incremental, right? Yeah. So how do you how do you think about the 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 strategy element of that, right? Where you have to make it concrete, as it were, um, but also keep pushing in that direction of of trying to expand toward a properly circular economy. So in creating this list. Um really wanted to think through where are we seeing um, momentum uh, mm-hmm. in certain, either in certain sectors or in other parts of the world or even within Canada on certain items. Um, so there's like a proof of concept for a switch to 
you know, a non-single use, i.e. A, a reuse, refill, or zero package um, alternative. We also wanted to consider, um, yeah, I mean, as part of that, whether or not just alternatives exist, so alternative models or systems exist. Um, of course, you know, super critical is what are the things that are still most regularly ending up in the environment collected mm-hmm. through shoreline and community cleanups across Canada, but also globally. So, you know, on the issue of exports, what are things that low grade, rarely recycled plastics that um, we'd be likely to export elsewhere? Um, and we wanted to look at categories that will actually lead to to real change in sectors, i.e. that will force companies to change their model. So the elimination, they can't just make a switch to a different, different type of plastic wrap or a different type of plastic container, but they actually have to change the model. Right. When we then compared some of the items that came up through those conversations against what the Canadian Council of Ministers of the Environment had also been looking at, of course, there's overlap there. And so recently, last year, uh, the Canadian Council of Ministers of the Environment came out with a roadmap on single-use plastics, and they kind of did another assessment of prob- like a, of known problematic plastics, and um, they then prioritized them based on how problematic they are from an environmental, but also from a waste management perspective. And I definitely don't agree with the outcome of how they've chosen to, or how they propose to address those that have been prioritized, but definitely do agree with the list of plastics that they've been assessing. assessing. It's of course not comprehensive, um, Mm -hmm. but there were some on there and it was really revealing that this group of ministers, you know, of ministers across the country, you know, kind of agree that a, a massive number of plastic, single-use plastics and types of packaging um, used across Canada are super problematic um, and and need to be addressed in some way. So, yeah, when when we consider all of that, um, we kind of landed on some categories of products and packaging and then as well as kind of a a a list of highly problematic polymers chemical additives and certain types that we've also seen momentum in other jurisdictions around so an example would be phthalates um, or pvc Uh, some of these chemicals and, and polymers the eu for example or other countries are already um have already looked at so then it should be easier you know an easier sell that's how that's how we got to our list clearly a lot of strategy right like a lot of thinking went into that particular list um and it yeah it has to do with political will proof of concept as you put it and momentum and you know i definitely the, the list that the government created initially as meaning the first six single-use plastics that have been banned in Canada. It definitely struck me that they were the, you know, the lower hanging fruit. Um, Of course Mm -hmm. they are problematic in the environment because most are, 
um, and they're problematic in most in waste streams because most are. But they were the ones that's that there was already, um, you know, quite a bit of ach- action being taken by municipalities and other jurisdictions and in other countries. Um, so it was kind of an easy move, but it wasn't, it didn't represent, um, you know, the ex- obviously the extent of the problem. And when we think about where most people are interacting with the bulk of plastic packaging, it's at the grocery store and the current ban will really have very, very little impact on a person's, you know, daily or weekly visit to the grocery store. And I think that when the, the existing ban has fully gone into effect, I really hope that we see really positive impacts in communities and in the environment and in our in the cleanup data um, and in waste streams for those items. But I don't think people are going to all of a sudden be like, wow, I'm so glad the, the plastic ban has gone into effect because my life is so much more plastic free now. Mm. The existing single-use plastic ban only represents around 3% of plastic waste generated in Canada. So we have a long way to go before we really notice a difference, both you know, in our blue bins and our waste streams um, and in the environment. It's low-hanging fruit for the government in the sense of shifting uh, you know, toward an environmental response while at the same time um, appeasing people that are deeply attached to a certain kind of culture of convenience. Um, it's, it's an, it's a bare, it's a tiny little incremental change that is going to, um, anger industry, but perhaps not enough for them to be able to take legal recourse. So it's, it's like low hanging fruit in the sense of a kind of like political realism or, uh, just kind of like need to, conveniently compromise in order to get like anything done. But the real, like the danger there is that um, while that, you know, low hanging fruit gets plucked, there is still a kind of raging war against nature. I mean, like this is, this is to me um, the, the kind of fundamental reality that you and others are trying to, um, you know, make apparent to people uh, that maybe are, in these enclaves of kind of convenience where they don't, they just, they don't have to confront the reality of the explosive volatile effects of a fossil fuel, fuel economy. And, and so, I mean, like to kind of get at this question, um, I guess I wanted to quote an article that you wrote where you, you're writing about the biodiversity crisis, especially, and you emphasize that humans are part of nature. And then you say for better or worse, um, which I found, you know, really, you know, resonant with my own misanthropy to a certain extent. Like I believe in the possibility of a climate revolution. I really fundamentally do. I believe that it's necessary. But what you're what you're saying in this article is that the destruction of nature and the oppression of nature stewards is rooted in colonialism and that we need to swap out our anthropocentric lens and and have this like openness, this radical openness to um, the idea that uh, um a, a more, let's say, sustainable, but really fundamentally a more radically uh, salutary and 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 survivable world is possible. Um, and I guess you know where I guess you know my question is like, first of all, do you do you see value in imagining the, m- the mobilization for an end to plastics or an end to fossil fuels? Do you see value in in trying to invoke this language of a kind of war 
because it's something that often gets sort of played with in climate communication, right? The idea that there is this war on nature and we need to reckon with it, you know? And then also, do you, do you see like uh, maybe more value in something that is a little bit more kind of oriented toward care and, and things like indigenous led conservation or protection of nature? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think for a long time, the war language was, you know, more what, you know, advocacy organizations like Greenpeace, uh, like, you know, would invoke. We need to fight. Mm -hmm. We need to win. We need to like, we need to, you know, give it to them essentially, whoever the them was in the context. Um, Need to mobilize. We need to mobilize. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually catch myself a lot, um, you know, even strong, much stronger language than that sometimes being like, it, it, you know, I, I think it is worth thinking through, like, is, do we want to fight violence with violent language, you know, mm-hmm. violence to nature, violence to people? It is, it is a fight, but, but I think part of it is that we hear so much about eco anxiety and um, I think so many people are in a state of fight or flight in their sure. own bodies so much of the time now, you know, whether it's because of the communities in which they live are constantly experiencing, um, you know, all kinds of uh, harms and crises um, or because just in their own, you know, personal life, they're just like trying to get through the day. Um, And then you add on top of that, the eco anxiety. And I think it's just, it's too much. And, you know, we're learning a lot more about how, eco-anxiety is impacting people and it's causing people to shut down even further, which is definitely not what we need. And I think a shift to, you know, to more of a, we can do this, we can do it through, yeah, through care, through uplifting, like the bright lights within society, the, the examples of hope, the examples of um, progress. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be all roses and kittens because it certainly isn't. But I think part of centering justice and trying to move towards a model of, you know, indigenous led uh, conservation and, you know, putting the people that are the most impacted in various contexts in the middle of uh, crafting solutions and a way forward. We do have to be mindful of, of how, you know, sometimes our metaphors and and our language are negatively impacting you know their ability to show up um, or feel that they're maybe in a movement that's inspiring you know there's a lot there's so much around yeah you know hope versus doom and and all of it and I'm not sure exactly where I land on it I, I don't think I'm either I'm either one I think both are important to raise awareness and then mobilize because I think mm-hmm. I think some people do need to be shocked out of their state, you know? Yeah. Their aloofness, the kind of, yeah, Yeah. the indifference, the 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 indifference, indifference, right? Flight, flight can be, can mean indifference, you know? Yes, totally. So I think probably both have a role, but I think we have to be mindful of um, who we're trying to communicate to and mobilize um, and work with and be allies to uh, when we're thinking of how we're talking about, the transition that we need and how we need to get there. 
Yeah, for sure. I think I, I agree that, um, you know, you use a metaphor in one article, for example, uh, the, the plastic cage, right? Like that it's sort of hard to imagine ways out of what you call our plastic cage. Yeah. Um, and the plastic cage metaphor is maybe, you know, the one that sticks with me the most because, you know, a plastic cage is extraordinarily durable and yet it can be sort of malleable. You might not even see that it's there. Um, plastic is a thing that many of us imagine does protect us in sort of this impermeable bubble. Yeah. Um, but it is nonetheless, um, you know, something that we are encasing ourselves in. I love this idea that um, we, we need to uh, think more radically, that we need to craft solutions in order to move toward a circular economy that in, in some ways might feel inconvenient, mm -hmm. but one that will mean operating, as you say, within nature's limits, you know, which is the opposite of where we are. Um, and that might mean leaving certain things behind, um, but those things are, it, it's good and right to, to leave some of those things behind. Yeah. We can, we can do it, as you say. Definitely. Just one thing that you mentioned that um, I've been increasingly thinking about over the last couple of years um, is like how everything is through the anthropocentric lens. And when you really mm -hmm. stop to, um, I have a, you know, I have a two-year-old kid now and just from such an early age, the stories, you know, like from nursery rhymes to what, you know, to suggested activities for kids to it's all about like how are we using nature how like using nature or how can then nature benefit us it's everywhere in our society it's i know what you mean everything is about how are we benefiting from it it's one that is kind of the ultimate shift is our relationship with nature um mm -hmm. yeah and that we are you know we are part of it um that is ultimately going to be the biggest shift we need to be addressing not just our planetary crises but also our social justice crises around the world because mm. um, obviously they're so linked yeah i mean this idea of a kind of education in like what we what we might call a kind of instrumental rationality this idea that it's appropriate to instrumentalize nature to make it yeah um, but that's it's just pure extractivism so yeah. like definitely thinking through how that manifests itself in like children's literature yeah. would be, you know, fascinating. Maybe I'll, maybe you could come back and we'll, we'll do an episode on that. Totally, that would be great. Yeah. I've been thinking <laughs> probably way too much about it and analyzing way too For many sure. things. Yeah. And um, yeah, even thinking about like Richard Scarry and Busy Town and the kind of like obsession with being useful in, in Thomas the Tank Engine, you know, all this stuff. It's like, what is with the productivism oh, of all of it totally. you know it's just it's almost yeah. like all of it is problematic you know it's like we need to you know we just can't keep telling the same stories over and over as if that's normal it's been it's not worked out for us as a society and i wonder what a post plastics kind of allegory would look like you know in the context of uh children's literature um Anyway, yeah. we should save that for episode two. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, it's been great talking to you. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for doing this. You too. Thanks so much for reaching out. It's been a really great discussion. 